Our reading today is uh, from Genesis 50, 15 to 21, and Exodus 1, 6 to 7. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are say, to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to be accomplished. What is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again. As, uh, as Garen said, my name is Nathan Barzi, and I'm a pastor at Christ the King in Newton. Um, before we come to this passage, let's bow our heads and hearts together uh, and pray. Father in heaven, throughout this morning, at every point in this worship service, we have responded to what you have done first. Uh, it is you uh, who have called us into your presence. Uh, and because of that calling, we have been so bold uh, as to ask that you would do what you've promised to do, to send your spirit uh, to be present. Uh, it is you uh, whose kindness has moved us to repentance. It is you who have assured us of your grace uh, and of your forgiveness. It is you who have been so generous toward us that we have been able to respond with hearts cheerful uh, to give to you uh, and to your kingdom. And now again, as we come to sit under your word, we stand amazed uh, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you are a God uh, who, although you are uh, infinite and incomprehensible, you have nevertheless revealed yourself to us. You have given us your word. You have given us the word, your son, Jesus Christ, who dwelt among us, uh, who took flesh, uh, and we saw him. And so now as we turn to your word, we say, yet again, uh, we need you. We need you to be present with us. That if you don't show up, then this time spent reading uh, and considering your word uh, is for nothing. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray uh, that you'll open the eyes of our hearts, that you will soften uh, our hearts, make us able to worship you, uh, give us ears to hear uh, what you have to say to the church as we look at your word. I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations 
of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the last few times I've been with you, uh, I've been preaching out of the Gospel of John, but now at Christ the King Newton, we've turned the page, and this summer we've started a new series. Um, the series is called A Blessing to the Nations, um, and it's a, series, it's, it's a series in which we're going to look um, at God's mission uh, to send his people out to be a blessing to the nations um, across the whole of Scripture. So in Newton this summer, we're actually going to be spanning every section, every genre of Scripture, seeing that theme play out. Um, we began last week the, the kind of central text for all of us, uh, for all of this uh, uh, story, uh, comes in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls a man named Abram. He says to him, this is the first three verses of, of Genesis 12, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, let me just give you the 30-second version of uh, the sermon that Bradley, uh, my co-pastor in Newton, preached last week, just so we know um, just sort of the, the, the foundation, the background for this whole series. It was really easy to remember. Um, Bradley's really good with alliteration. Um, and so from this text, he said, here we see of God's mission. We see the core of God's mission. We see the context and we see the continuity of, of his mission. The core of the mission is simply go and be a blessing. Um, in, the, in the original Hebrew, where it says in what I read, so that you will be a blessing, it's actually an imperative. And so God is saying, go, be a blessing. The context for the mission of God is everything that comes before Genesis 12. And this is important to understand. It's important to understand that when God calls Abram, you know, sometimes it feels like the story of Abram, who's later named Abraham, um, right? Father Abraham had many sons. That can feel like the beginning of a brand new story that just kind of comes out of nowhere. And this is the story of the people of Israel. But you got to understand that that story has a context, and it's everything that came before. It's a God who creates a world, a God who creates humanity and calls humanity into relationship with himself. Um, but over the course of those first 11 chapters, starting with the fall itself in Genesis 3, we see how humanity rebels and turns away from God. And over the course of 11 chapters, it's very, very clear how humanity is not going to save itself. God has given humanity a mission right from the very beginning to fill the earth, to be fruitful, to multiply to spread God's order and beauty and peace, shalom, wholeness, um, fulfillment, fullness. We talked about that last week here um, over, over the face of the earth. But in Genesis 11, right before the call, sort of the last chance, if you will, we see humanity doing exactly the opposite. Um, the people say, we're not going to spread out and fill the earth. We're not going to share God's goodness with everyone. No, no, we're going to gather in one place. We're going to make a great name for ourselves. We're even going to build a tower up to heaven. We are going to do the work of connecting heaven and earth 
on our own, our own way. God frustrates that, but then when he calls Abram, you see the way that his call responds to that. The people had said, let's make a great name for ourselves, let's bless ourselves. God says, no, no, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you a great name. And I'm going to do it to the end that all the families of the earth will be blessed. I am going to see that mission go forward. And of course, that leads straight to the last C, the continuity of the mission. That from Genesis to Revelation, what God is doing uh, is not plan A that fails, and then let's try again with plan B, and then let's try again with plan C, but it is one. It is one mission across the whole of God's scriptures. Now, okay, so that was the really brief background. Um, this week, we're looking at the end of Genesis. We're looking at, at Genesis 50. We've moved forward just a little bit in the story. And what I want us to see in this passage is how even early, even right at the beginning uh, of, of the story, we're seeing how faithful God is to sustain this mission. We read the end of the Joseph story in Genesis 50. Um, let me fill you in on what happened in between. Okay, so God called Abram. He called him. He said, I want you to go. Go to the land that I will show you. Be a blessing. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Um, as we stick with Abraham, God makes him some promises. He makes a covenant with him, and he makes him some promises. He says, I'm going to give you children, and I'm going to give you land. Um, I'm going to give you so many children that you can't even count them. They'll be like the stars of the sky, and you're going to fill the land uh, with, with my blessings. Now, by the end of the story, by the end of Abraham's story, how much of that have we seen? How many children are there by the end of Abraham's story? How much, how much land? Um, not very much of either. By the end of Abraham's story, he has two children. Um, one of them, uh, Ishmael, is actually his attempt uh, to have a child his, his own way, not to wait for God to provide a child. Um, the second one, Isaac, is the one referred to as the son of the promise, the one through whom uh, God is going to to bless the nations. But it's just one person, right? It's just Isaac. How much land does he have? Actually, at the end of the story, all he has, he has this one burial plot. He's purchased a burial plot in the land to bury his wife. He actually overpays for it by quite a bit. Um, it's kind of a comical story. Um, but that's all he's got. So there's sort of small beginnings um, at, the, at the beginning of this story. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, don't have time to tell their story, but it's a really entertaining story um, of God working through some extremely messed up people. That's kind of a common theme through this whole uh, Bible, actually, God working through really messed up people um, that all point to the one who's coming who finally won't be. Um, Jacob has 12 children. The 11th of them is named Joseph. And Joseph is his favorite, in kind of an unhealthy way, right? He really favors Joseph. And it doesn't help Joseph or his brothers at all. Joseph is spoiled. Um, Joseph has a big head. 
Joseph goes around telling his brothers, hey, I've been having these dreams. And you know what these dreams mean? These dreams are telling me that one day you, all of you, um, and not only you, but mom and dad, are going to bow down to me. Um, they don't take this very well, as you can imagine. Um, and so there comes a day when they're all out uh, far from their father, and they see a band of slave traders coming by. And they say, let's see what become of this dreamer. And they sell him into slavery for pieces of silver. And he's taken to the land of Egypt. Um, while he's there, he is imprisoned on false accusations um, and sort of falls just to the depths of where he can be until dreams come back into the story. It turns out that Joseph has a knack for interpreting dreams. Um, he interprets the dreams of some of his fellow prisoners um, in ways that help uh, one of them uh, to go free. As the one goes free, he says, hey, don't, don't forget about me. Uh, but he does, and he continues to languish in prison until Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt, starts to have dreams, dreams that he doesn't understand, dreams that no one else could interpret. And then he's remembered. His former fellow prisoner remembers, there was a guy in prison who could tell me what my dreams meant. And so they, they bring Joseph out. Uh, and Joseph explains to Pharaoh that the dreams that he's having mean that a famine is coming. That there's going to be seven good years ahead of them, but then after that, seven years of famine. Famine so bad that the seven good years will just be forgotten. And so he advises, says, here's what you should do. Take these next seven years and store up as much grain as you can. Get ready. Prepare. Pharaoh thinks this is a great idea. He thinks it's such a good idea that he actually pulls Joseph out of prison and says, I like this plan and I'm putting you in charge of it. And in fact, in all of Egypt, you are second in command. There's no one greater than you except for me in all of Egypt. Um, the dreams come true, seven years of plenty, they store up grain and then seven years of famine, not just in Egypt, but in the whole region. When we get to chapter 50, the section that we read, what's happened is, Joseph's brothers, back in Canaan, have come to Egypt to look for food because they've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Um, of course, they have to go and ask Joseph for the food, but they don't recognize him at first. Um, he recognizes them. There's sort of this long back and forth story um, of him testing them to see if they've changed, to see if their hearts are any different, um, before we get uh, to the end of the story. Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. He said, I want you to come and live here. I want you to bring uh, your father. I want you to bring Jacob. Um, but now, Jacob has just died. And here's where we see um, the concern uh, that Joseph's brothers had. They're worried. Now that Jacob is dead, maybe now Joseph will get his revenge on us. They say it might be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil uh, that we did uh, to him. And we see that he forgives them. So, with all of this, what do we learn 
about the mission of God and his faithfulness to it. Um, Bradley's sermon last week um, had three C's. I'm going to give you three S's. We're going to see the scope of God's mission. We're going to see the security of God's mission. And then the last S I'm actually going to hold off. Um, I'll tell you when we, when we get there. But there's the scope uh, and there's the security. One of the things that we see about the mission of God, um, sometimes we tend to think um, that what God really cares about is the purity of our hearts, that what he really cares about um, is that we have a personal relationship with him, um, that we have faith. He does care about that. That's tremendously important. Um, That's the ground of everything else. But if you think back to the context, if you think back to what went wrong in the world as a result of the fall, um, the problem with that view is that it's too small. It's too small an understanding of what God is doing. It's too small an understanding of what he's restoring. See, when man turned away from God um, in Genesis 3, um, what did he break? He broke every relationship that humanity has. Certainly, he broke humanity's relationship with God. He put a wedge uh, between us and God. We rebelled uh, against him. But he also broke our relationship with one another. He introduced conflict uh, and strife into the world. We see this right in the, in the words of Genesis 3 itself, that, that God says to the woman that whereas previously... Whereas your relationship with your husband had been uh, one of love, uh, one without shame, now there's going to be conflict, there's going to be tension, there's going to be strife. Um, It's the ground for all of the tension and strife that we experience, all of the violence uh, that we see uh, in in the world around us. Um, Our relationship with God is broken, our relationship with one another is broken. Um, Our relationship with the creation itself is broken. Um, when God speaks to Adam in Genesis 3, um, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So whereas previously the relationship to creation had been one where creation was fruitful, the ground provided everything that they needed, now there's pain. Um, Now there's... um, uh, there's discord. Um, it's broken. If you have, have ever had that, that sneaking sense, maybe you've had this recently, maybe you've had this especially in the last two years, um, that it just feels like everything is broken. That it just feels like all around you is chaos. That everything is just getting worse and worse. And there doesn't seem to be anything you can do to hold it together. Um, The Bible would say, you are not very far off, and there's good reason for it, Um, that because humanity, which God put at the very apex of his creation, because humanity, which was given this job uh, to rule over the earth as God's steward, um, again, to, to fill it, to be fruitful, to multiply, to extend the borders of this garden that God had made, um, because humanity turned away from that vocation, everything is broken. 
One of the things that we see then at the end when we look at uh, what's happened in Joseph's life is that God's mission, when God says, go and be a blessing to all nations, that blessing extends as far as the curse extends, right? At Christmas, we sing that song, you know, it's got the lyric, far as the curse is found, right? Um, that's, in, that's in Joy to the World. His blessing extends as far as the curse is found. And so if the curse was something that affected not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with each other and our relationship with the creation, look at what we see in Genesis. That in Genesis, God is working to bring reconciliation between people who are at odds with each other. Um, he's working in Joseph's heart, in his brother's hearts, that they can be reconciled, that Joseph can forgive. And he's working to bring a blessing that saves humanity from the brokenness of creation. That in spite of this famine, in spite of this threat of mass starvation, um, he's placed his people, he's placed Joseph in just the right place and at just the right time uh, to bring healing and to bring restoration. I think one of the problems that we have when we sometimes think about the scope of what God wants us to do um, is that we, we tend to think very much at the scale of our own capacities, our own abilities, our own imagination even. We think in terms of a human-sized mission. And human-sized missions can be really big. They can be really ambitious. Like if you like, think about the words like the blank foundation, okay? Like whatever, however you fill in the blank, like the Gates Foundation, the Schmidt Foundation, right? There are some human beings um, who have done some really amazing and ambitious things, but it's still human-sized. It's still far smaller than what God can do. God is a God who is addressing all of the brokenness. In Romans, Paul talks about how the creation itself is groaning, um, waiting uh, for the redemption um, that God has promised. Have you ever considered the radical scope of God's mission? Have you asked how he might be calling you uh, into that? And all of this despite the fact uh, that we remain fallen, that we remain not only finite, but fallen. Um, that's why we need the second thing that we see uh, in this text. We've seen the scope of God's mission, but there's also the security of God's mission. There's the assurance that he is going to see it through, um, despite the fact uh, that it involves fallen human beings. Look at what Joseph says to his brothers. It's really notable that they send this message to him. They say, here's what our father said. They're making this up, by the way. Here's what our father said. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And he weeps, right? It, it, it breaks his heart to hear that they're living in fear, um, that they don't believe that he has uh, forgiven them. And here's what he says. He says, do not fear, 
For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. The security of God's mission, the assurance that he will see it through, is that it rests on his character and not on ours, that it rests on his power and not on ours, that it rests on his sovereignty. Um, we sometimes talk about this doctrine of, of providence, right? And this is, this, is one of these, this is one of these teachings. I call it the doctrine of providence because that's, that's how it's usually known, and it's usually, when you think about it, you think about it as being this very abstract, arcane, philosophical thing that first-year seminary students debate late at night, right? Um, you need to know that is not what it's for. Um, the providence of God, his governing of all things, his rule, his control over all things, is not an abstract philosophical treatise. Um, it is for your comfort. It is for exactly the same comfort that Joseph spoke uh, to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Because here's what it means. It means that even though God isn't the author of sin, even though he's not the one doing evil or causing us to do evil, he is fully in control and fully able to work even through the evil that we commit for our good. That even as we mess up, uh, even as we choose to go our own way, we cannot thwart God's plans for us. Uh, we cannot deter him from his purposes to bless us. And there's one other thing to notice about this, is that the fact that Joseph is able to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, that is absolutely essential to his ability to forgive his brothers. Right? Because think about this. They had ruined his life. Right? They sold him into slavery. He wound up not just in slavery, but in prison. Um, they had taken everything from him. And if his attitude was, my well-being depended on my having freedom, a place in my father's house, material comfort, and you took all of that from me, he would never have been able to forgive. But because he understands that because God can and does work for his good, and not only for his good, but for the good of the nations, for the good of the world, through the evil that his brothers had done. If that's his attitude, if that's your attitude, then there's really nothing that you're not able to forgive. Here's the question that I would pose to you as you think about the security of God's mission, the assurance that God will see his good purposes come through. Where are you tempted towards despair? Where are you tempted towards despair for healing and reconciliation? Have you, on the one hand, despaired of being able to serve God? Because you look at your own character, you look at your own life, and you say, I'm too far gone. I've done too much. God cannot use someone as broken as this. Or, on the other hand, have you despaired of, re of reconciliation in a relationship where someone has hurt you so deeply that you think this relationship is beyond repair? Where have you been tempted to give up? 
The providence of God, as I say, is not an abstract philosophical doctrine. It is something for us to get our minds around, and maybe more than that, it's something for us to get our hearts around so that we would always pray and never give up and never turn towards despair. God cannot be thwarted. He is a God who redeems the years that the locust had eaten. Um, the reason that we looked at the first, uh, a couple verses out of Exodus, by the way, um, is precisely so that we can see how God is even early in this story being faithful to the very promises that he made to Abraham, right? Abraham died with two children and a little burial plot. But by the end of Joseph's life, what we read from Exodus chapter 1, 6 to 7 says, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But, listen to this, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This story is far from over. The land that they're in is not the land that God has promised. They're still in Egypt, and you probably know that there's some trouble ahead before they get out. Um, but God is being faithful. The people are fruitful. They're increasing. They're filling the land. Um, God will see his promises come through. Um, it is really good news that the success, the security of God's mission depends on his character. It reminds us how much we need salvation from the outside, uh, even as we're called into that mission by God. Um, that's the third S, the one that I held off on. Um, there's this word that goes through the book of Genesis and even beyond. It's the word seed. When God promises offspring to Abraham, the actual word that he uses, if you translate it literally, is, is seed. And the word seed kind of moves the plot of Genesis along. Um, and the reason is because, go back again to Genesis 3, the very first promise that God made, the very first time he spoke what we would say is the gospel to his people, was right here in Genesis 3. It's actually the words that he spoke to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. See, the serpent had managed to redraw the lines of friendship. He had con convinced Eve, he had convinced Adam and Eve that God was their enemy and he was their friend. And God is saying, I am not leaving things like that. I will put enmity back between you and them. They will know that I am their friend, that I am their God, that I am their father. Um, and he promises seed. He says, one day the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. And from then on, the story really never gets cut off uh, from that promise. Um, it's a story where God, in, in calling Abram, he calls one man, and that man becomes a family, and that family becomes a whole people. But like I said, it's a whole people who are messed up uh, and who don't follow God's purposes in many different ways. You can trace this through the whole Old Testament. And so in, eventually, it comes back to one man. It comes back to Jesus, who finally is the one who actually is faithful to God's mission. Um, but because he is faithful, 
the blessing that God has promised expands yet again. So you can kind of see this diagram. It's kind of easy to remember because it kind of looks like a fish. Um, you know, we go from one man out to a people, back down to one man, and then explodes to a people, to the people of God, to us, to all of us, to whom God's Spirit has been given, poured out on all flesh. Um, we see hints of this one who's coming, uh, even right here in this text, when we think about Joseph. That's one question that we should always be asking ourselves when we looked at when we look at the story of God's mission across the entire Bible, always be asking yourself, where is this pointing me towards the seed, towards the one? Like, where am I getting hints of the promise of that one? Um, I couldn't come up with a better way of explaining this than the one in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I think many of you are familiar with. Uh, and so I'm just going to read it. Here's the end of the Joseph story. Uh, the way I have read it to my children, and some of you have read to your children. One day, God would send another prince, a young prince, whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and would want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished, even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the whole world. Each week, when we gather under God's word, we are always gathered together at the foot of the cross. Every text is pointing us at Jesus. And so we're always brought together to behold in wonder that one who's finally faithful uh, to God's mission. But Jesus himself said, if I gather people to myself, I will send them out. If I am lifted up from the cross, I will draw all people to myself, uh, and they'll be sent out. And so every week, even as we're gathered together at the foot of the cross, we're then sent out uh, from this table, because God never sends his people out on mission without a good meal. Um, we're gathered together at the foot of the cross. And then we come to this table to have our faith be fed uh, and to be nourished uh, to the end that our love would be God's love reaching into the world, to the end that we would be a blessing to the city where God has sent us. So before we come to this table, let's pray to that end.